The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, tempestuous weekend in the Premier League. Rainstorm at Spurs, rain ending at Villa. An area of high pressure over Leeds and unexpectedly a forest on fire in Nottingham. We talk weather, a Stevie will be missed, March has the foggiest and we hail the work of Marco Silva. All that plus, should Wolves really be managed from the press box and more in this Totally Football Show. And here we are on Monday, the 24th of October, with a top international lineup for you. Daniel Stories here, fresh from the Silly Islands. Hi, Daniel. Good morning, James. Uh, Natalie Gendra of ESPN Brazil. Bom dia. Bom dia to you, Natalie. And Tim Spears as well, back with us. Hey, Tim. From from nowhere more exotic than, than North London. Yeah, I realised I'd, I'd, I'd left myself with a bit of a, a task. <laughs> but yeah, no, I'm in North London. Center of a, a lot of a lot of what we might be talking about today. I mean, there's so much to to talk about. The weather, for example, Natalie, did you enjoy our fine English weather on on, on Sunday at, at oh Spurs? Oh my god, it, it got to the to that time of the year where it's just depressing, and it's just going to get worse. So yeah, never going to get that, used to Natalie. that. No, no, it's okay. I had a, I had a, a mate of mine as a Newcastle fan who was in the away end, and it was his first. Uh, experience of safe standing, which he said, you know, is is great, and it was good to be able to stand at an away game and not get told off for it. But the fact that the rain was sort of arching in and kind of pouring down on that away end uh, left... I mean, they were happy, Newcastle fans, but they were also absolutely drenched by the look of them on the TV. Well, it, it was coming into the press box at Spurs. There, there were certain grounds, Newcastle in particular, but also Spurs, where you're sort of near the front and the rain comes in, your laptops get wet. Well, you know, won't someone please think of the journalists in these these situations? Yeah, absolutely. There's probably, a, I mean, electrical risk as well there, no? I mean, good point, James. Anyway, felt like a quite a momentous round of action. Round 13 of the season officially. Arsenal's lead is down to two points now over uh, Man City after Arsenal got held to a one-one draw at Southampton. City beating Brighton. Newcastle have moved into the top four after they won two-one away at Spurs. Fulham are in the top seven above Liverpool after they won 3-2 away at Leeds, potentially ending the second straight manager's reign in the process. Leicester are out of the bottom three of the thumping Wolves. Leeds are now in it, and Forrester still last two points from safety, even though they had the shock of the weekend beating Liverpool. Shall we start the city ground, Daniel? Let's. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. All right, Nottingham Forest one, Liverpool nothing. Zilch, extraordinary. Forest with their first win over Liverpool since March 1996. Daniel Story, you were there. What a Saturday lunchtime you had. Yeah, it was it was brilliant because it was it was finally a real team performance from Forrest. Steve Cooper, if he had his time again, I think would probably move away from his his favoured three at the back, four in midfield, because Forrest were getting kind of swamped in most games. This idea that an extra defender makes you more solid defensively kind of falls apart if you're just inviting a load of pressure. So he picked three defensive midfielders, um, which 
both protected the defence and allowed one or two of those in turn to kind of surge up the pitch with the ball and try and press Liverpool without it. Ryan Yates for the second game in a row was was man of the match and very much pours cold water on this theory that Forrest needed to buy a completely new team because championship players couldn't cope because he's probably been Forrest's best player this season now. And the defence that was struggling, Steve Cook and Scott McKenna, barely put a foot wrong when they have that protection in front of them. I thought Liverpool were were pretty wretched, just really unimaginative, just passing sideways and, and backwards and eventually filtering out to a fullback to cross. Uh, they did create chances, but only really from set pieces. Uh, and it was yeah, it was a brilliant day for Steve Cooper. I thought what was really interesting as well is that after the game, normally he does these kind of fist pumps to the crowd when Forrest win and sort of whips them up, which he didn't really need to do for, for obvious reasons. But he also said... I, I, you know, I don't want to do that now. We're not in the position I want us to be in. We're not in the form I want us to be in. Let's, you know, let's over celebrating makes it look like we don't belong here. If we can beat Liverpool, we can show that we do belong here and therefore just sort of take this in our stride. The bad news is they play Arsenal away next week, which is, you know, away at top of the league. But it does feel like some he, he's kind of got a core now that is reflective of a squad that he's finally sort of shaping after that chaotic summer. Mm. Just the one goal in this, scored by Awani and a long period of late pressure from Liverpool as they tried for an equaliser or more. Dean Henderson with one particularly, a Gordon Banks-esque save uh, from uh, from Virgil van Dijk. How nervous was it there in the city ground in that? For all you were saying that Liverpool were abject. Yeah, I mean, it, it, yes, it was, it, it was a, a monumental win because it was firstly against Liverpool and secondly because Forrest desperately needed it. You know, if they'd have lost that game, which they were expected to do so, there'd have been three points clear, you know, adrift at the bottom. There'd have been five points plus goal difference off safety and things would have begun to look pretty sticky. So, yeah, I mean, it has to be a breakout win. Cooper made that point as well. You know, there's no point beating Liverpool at home if you then lose against Brentford at home in a couple of weeks' time. And they've obviously already lost at home to Fulham and Bournemouth and lost away at Leicester and Wolves. So they've reduced their margin for error significantly. Um, there is an argument that they are better against against better teams that like to have the ball. Uh, they were better against Spurs than the two 0 defeat suggested. I think they were, you know, they beat West Ham and West Ham looked to dominate possession as well. So there is an argument that that they are good as an underdog side. They were good at that in the Championship last season. But yeah, they they now just need to find a way to to stay in games and try and be a little bit more progressive with the ball but yes I mean it was it was an incredibly tense atmosphere for most of the game mm. I mean I guess he's he's shown his um, tactical intelligence by bringing in the three the three DMs I watched them at Leicester a few weeks ago and they played three forwards none of whom like to defend you know behind the aforementioned striker whose name someone else will pronounce um, but yeah it was Lingard Gibbs White and Johnson and they're all ball carriers and they just got they got completely overrun by Leicester that day and it looked for all the world that he was going to be sacked that week there were suggestions that they were basically lining up their shortlist to replace him. So you've got to give credit to the ownership for once showing a bit of patience, giving him a contract. And I know they're still bottom of the league, which is, you know, Daniel makes a really good point about, you know, not not wildly over-celebrating, but it does look like the um, the tide has turned. And in the last few weeks, he's, um, he's made some really smart decisions, you know, in terms of how to set them up. Without wishing to take any of the shine off Forest victory, this is not unusual to see from Liverpool. Uh, losing away from home, losing as well against a, a side in the bottom three. Michael Reed pointing out that under Klopp, they've lost as many Premier League games against teams in the bottom three as they have against teams in the top four, which is remarkable. And away from home, they've only had one victory this season. That was 
in Glasgow against Rangers in the Champions League, in which actually they've got Ajax away this coming midweek. But uh, here's another stat about Liverpool. They're closer in points to the relegation zone than they are to leaders Arsenal. Woof. I know they didn't have many players like Thiago or Trent or Diaz or Nunes or Jota. And uh, the Liverpool fans can complain about that. They had a light midfield with Fabinho, Curtis Jones, Harvey Elliott and Fabio Carvalho. And of course, that makes an impact. But when you have a team playing for so long together under the same manager, you expect them to adjust uh, to different type of situations and, and Klopp saying after the match that uh, they have scored from much worse situations I think it kind of sets the tone for Liverpool this season because they they pull out uh, an amazing performance against uh, Man City and, and they find situations and they fight and then uh, they, they play Forest and they can't overcome the, the obstacles that they have in that type of situation. It's not a good sign when Alisson is still the best on the pitch for them. So it's, 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 it's been hard to, to figure Liverpool out this season, definitely. Mm. The other thing I wanted to mention, I make no secret of the fact that, that I'm a, a Forest supporter and therefore I think it, it's even more important that we call out what happened on Saturday lunchtime, which is that despite the club reaching out on the poverty issues, there was the signing on, sign-on chant, which is, is awful. And there was also at least twice the always a victims chant towards Liverpool fans, which, I mean, I, I cannot fathom as a Forest supporter, you know, the fact that we were the other club at Hillsborough in 1989, the fact that if the ends had been different, it could have been, it could have been us. I just cannot fathom the kind of stupidity and ignorance of that. I know it's a minority and I know that that minority will always let down the majority in these instances. But at some point, Forest fans are going to have to kind of try and call this out amongst themselves. I know the club are trying to do work around that and, that needs to happen because it, you know, I know it's seen as banter, but it's not banter. It's abuse. It's it's completely unacceptable, and it doesn't matter if it's only six or seven or seventy or eighty people in a crowd of thirty thousand. Like one is too many for that. It's I, I I couldn't believe. I really hope that we might have changed on that, and we haven't, which is really sad. Mm, it is. Well, well said, Daniel. Uh, bottom three now reads Leeds, Wolves and Forest, all on nine points. And just two points above them are West Ham and Leicester. And in fact, the entire bottom half are separated now by just four points. It's going to be an interesting season, this one, down the end of the table. The other teams at the bottom, uh, as it stands, well, the team that looks most in trouble right now are Wolves, who, Daniel, you went along to see... On Sunday, their 4-0 defeat by Leicester. This wasn't televised, no. so I'm guessing, what, Leicester just ran all over them? <laughs> kind of like a goal fest from start to finish, yeah? Yeah, it was, it was a very weird game because Leicester had five shots and scored four goals and scored with their first four shots. And Wolves had 20-odd shots and didn't score. And yet, from the moment Leicester scored, I never really considered that they weren't going to win the game because they were they were brilliant on the counter Brendan Rodgers has clearly changed Leicester in the last few weeks. I think that the eight games they've had the most possession this season, they've not won. And three of the five games they've had the least possession, they have won. And I think that that's indicative of Rodgers saying, 
looking at his squad and going back to basics and saying the best players we have are attacking midfielders. So why don't we try and soak up a bit of pressure? Woot Feist has been has been superb. He helped to do that. And then attacking teams on the counter, and that's what they did, and they were ruthless. But yeah, I mean, I'm sure Tim will talk about Wolves in a minute, but the mood was absolutely mutinous. I was at Molyneux when England lost 4-0 to Hungary at home, and the mood of kind of against the manager, against the kind of individual players in the team was was as bad as I've ever seen it. This was pretty close, not towards Steve Davis as a coach because he's been given a hospital pass, but to Scott Sellers, the technical director, to, I suspect, to elements of the ownership as well because they feel maybe that's gone awry and to certain players who just didn't really look up for it, if I'm honest, which is unforgivable in a game against another struggling team at home. Mm. All right, Tim, you're up. Wolves. Terry Connor vibes to the Steve Davis business? Yeah, there's there's a there's a famous picture that Wolves fans share of Terry Connor looking very very glum after a, 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 one of his many defeats that he oversaw, which which pops up a lot. Um, I mean, Steve Davis was the under 18s manager, and uh, I, I'd suggest the under 16s manager should should be sort of waiting in the wings to maybe take over for the World Cup, whoever that is. Um, I mean, they're, they're yeah, they're a shambles at the moment. I mean, the biggest thing on the pitch, which has been happening for two years now, is they just don't score any goals. There's nobody in that team, I don't think, who's apart from Gonzalo Guedes, who looks like he's been sent here as punishment for something by George Mendes. Um, there's always there's always one every year that that, that that Mendes sends over that doesn't want to be here. It was Trincao last year. This year it's Guedes. Apart from him, nobody scored five goals in a top European league of the current available players. Um, yes, you could say Diego Costa, but but this is the sort of the wish version of Diego Costa. I think that's that's what the kids would say. Um, basically, you've you've got the pantomime of Costa, but nothing else with it. It's quite sad, really, watching him sort of trundle around week after week, getting embroiled in these spats, which which Wolves like putting out on Twitter. You know, the mischief maker. But um, but it's just pantomime and no football. He looks like he's auditioning for Captain Hook at the Wolverhampton Ground this uh, this Christmas. Um, and the problem, the problems just go all all the way to the top. Scott Sellers got it, as Daniel said, really badly at the weekend. But he doesn't make any decisions at, at the top level of the club. You know, he's, he's called the technical director, director, but you know, the man who makes the decisions is, is Jeff Shee in partnership with George Mendes. There's there's no structure there. That that's the problem. You know, Mendes gave them Nuno and and a lot of players, and then he gave them Bruno Large, and then this time he's tried to give them Julian Lopetegui, who, who said no. Then he tried to give them Nuno again, despite them sacking him last year. So when there's no Mendes client available, there's no structure beneath that to then go out and conduct a proper manager search, which is why you get a championship manager turning them down, which is you know humiliating for the club. Um, but none of that works well in a catchy chant, I suppose. So they went they went for Sellers out yesterday because he's the sort of the, the the public face of it. And obviously, you know, the partnership they have with Gestafu has, has has done wonderful things for the club, and and things that other clubs are very envious of. Um, but without that structure, yeah, perhaps there was an inevitability to, to things going wrong at some point. And they've unravelled very, very, very quickly. And I don't see anyone there to inspire them on or off the pitch to, to keep them up at the moment. You know, it's all about this this managerial appointment as and when that happens. I had no idea. So Jester has kind of turned them into like a penal colony for, 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 for Portuguese football. A bit like, say, a posting to... Britain was in the Roman Empire, something like that. That's Send what they were. That's what they were going for, I think. Yeah, right. That was the that was the inspiration. So the, the decision to get rid of Bruno Large wasn't made with somebody else lined up. Was there some incident that sparked that? 
they must have got a nod from Julian Lopetegui, who who was by all accounts about to be sacked by Sevilla, and that duly happened a few days later. The suggestion is that that it's personal reasons. You know, his, his elderly father's not very well, and that's why he's that's why he said no to them. But like I said, there just aren't any other sort of top level available candidates in the guest of each stable on this particular occasion. So they've they've tried to push Nuno, who's you know very very keen to 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 come back and take the job, but Wolves aren't prepared to go down that route. So they're they're left with the under 18s manager, who you know I really like Steve Davis. He's he's a great guy. He knows the club through and through. He's a Wolves fan, but Apart from uh, you know a few years at Crew in League One a few years ago, he hasn't got managerial experience, which is why Scott Sellers is trying to help him, and, and the fans have turned on him because it's 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 sort of come out that Sellers is helping make the subs, so he's he's got a line to the bench. He sat up in the press box, um, making notes and passing on, sat with the analysts, sort of passing on tactical instructions. So it's quite unusual for a, a you know a technical director to be doing that, um, but he's just replicating the model that he that he does in the academy because um, when Steve Davis is under 18's manager on the touchline Sellers who's, who's very very good at the academy side of things and did a good job at Man City before Wolves will sit, sit up in the stands and, and pass on advice so they're replicating that model for the first team for a big Premier League game and, and, and it's rightly you know I guess getting a bit of scorn but um, but Sellers is the wrong target there's um, he, he doesn't make he doesn't make big decisions at, at, at first team level in normal circumstances and the owners have got a, a, sort of a, a lot to answer for at the moment Apart from that, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Five goals, Tim, in 12 matches. If they continue scoring at this rate, they will have reached, by the end of the season, a grand total of 16. 16. The lowest number of goals ever recorded in an English top-flight season. Two teams. One of them is Derby County, that's correct. The other one's Sheffield United, and they both got to 20 but Wolves, on, on course, perhaps he shatter that remarkable stuff. But I mean, the, the, you know, the guy who would normally score the goals would be Raúl Jiménez. But he's mm. so he's currently in Mexico. What? Um, he's had a troublesome knee injury, of which no time frame has been given for his return. So he's gone. He's been in Mexico for a couple of weeks now. Apparently, a member of the Wolves medical team has gone with him. Um, but he's still posting sort of you know promotional uh, pictures on his Instagram of, of boots and whatnot, which is which obviously gone down really well with the Wolves fans. Um, You're going to love him uh, scoring. You're going to love him scoring five goals at the World Cup, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> but it's just it's just bizarre. Steve Davis said the other day, you know, he, he hasn't spoke to Jimenez, so so he's away in Mexico, you know, presumably prioritising the World Cup. The, the the team spirit which the club was sort of aimed on under Nuno has just compl- completely vanished. One thing which people have mentioned, I think we've mentioned on this pod before, losing Connor Cody and also John Roddy in the summer. You know, I, I was I was hearing Frank Lampard say yesterday how Cody and Tarkowski have, have revolutionised the Everton dressing room, and I think you can say you know the opposite for him um, departing the, the Wolves dressing room because they were so keen to change formation to go to a back four that Cody couldn't play in, which he's now doing very successfully for Everton. So it's just another crazy decision that I can't get my head around. So, but there are a lot more of those. Oh, it's pretty de- pretty depressing for a Monday it morning, is a isn't, bit, it? isn't it? It, like, it kind of feels like therapy, really. <laughs> well, there's that. I mean, you're just essentially shifting all your inwi onto the rest of us. But we'll, <laughs> Sorry. we'll move on to uh, uh, Leeds and their 3-2 defeat at Ellen Road by Fulham on Sunday. Wow. Fulham, who just a few days before had ended Stephen Gerrard's reign at Villa with a 3-0 win against them. Will they now... Spark a second straight sacking? What's the word? Will Jesse get his marching orders? 
his uh, post-match interview was strong, strong words, the, the way he communicates. He, he, was, he kept saying that we are unified here that, and that he knows that all, uh, all eyes are on him as it should be. The truth is it was always going to be tough for Jesse Marsh to follow Bielsa because whether you like it or not, uh, whether they gave away too many goals or not, the team leads, they had such a strong identity. And with Marsh... You, you, you sort of, you don't see it. They're all saying how they're on the same page, but I don't see which page is this. You know, with Bielsa, they considered a lot because they exposed themselves offensively and that intensity made them vulnerable at times. Now they just, they just seem sloppy sometimes and they, they're not giving anything in return for that. So it's not looking good for, for, for Jesse Marsh and... Um, I don't know how unified they will be or for how long they will be all in that same page with Jesse Marsh. Mm. Certainly the feelings seem to be it's a matter of when, not if, Daniel. Yeah, and this is another club to follow up on, on Smalls. This is another club where, where questions can go to managers but also need to be slightly redirected higher up the food chain because... Leeds lost their two best players in the summer by a distance in Calvin Phillips and Rafinha. They did sign players, but they tried, they signed young players who were out of the kind of Jesse Marsh, you know, Wikipedia page, basically, and Brendan Aronson and, and Tyler Adams. And Aronson's been great, but it's not enough. It's not enough to replace Rafinha. It's not enough to replace the, the stability in the middle of the part that Calvin Phillips provided. And they also had a month to buy a new striker and ended up with net minus one striker because they let Daniel James go um, to Fulham and didn't replace him and didn't buy a striker. And Patrick Bamford is, is struggling to get full fitness. He's certainly struggling for, for full form. And if if Leeds, are, as Natalie says, if Leeds aren't scoring goals, they're in trouble because their defenders are not good enough to keep clean sheets in the Premier League without a defensive screen in front of them. We talked about Forrest playing three DMs. Leeds don't have three DMs. So... <laughs> they're going to struggle to replicate that, and it, they, Natalie says, they just they just look like a nothing team. You just you're never quite sure what they're trying to build or how they're trying to defend as a group. It, it just looks like a team put out on the pitch to sort of have a go and and try, and that's not good enough at this level. Mm. Well, indeed, in the bottom three, Fulham though, and Neil Laws uh, asking, is the work of Marco Silva going under the radar? And particularly points out Neil. Cooper struggling to mould his 22 new players into a team at Forest. Silver's incorporated 11 new players and got Fulham into 7th place with 18 points after 12 games. They're only a few points, 3 points off the Champions League. Place is remarkable. Tim, you, you mentioned you saw them against uh, Aston Villa on uh, Thursday. Yeah, I thought they were... Um, I thought it's, it's one of the most one-sided and complete performances that you'll probably see from like a non-top-6 team this season. I mean, it was... I know Villa were obviously a shambles and has stopped playing for Gerrard, but it, it reminded me of like a League One team or a League Two team going away to a Premier League team in an FA Cup tie and just trying to hold on. I called them uh, angry ballet in, in, a, in a piece the other day because they're so balletic, but but they're also very sort of f- forceful at the same time. It's, just, it's, it's absolutely terrible metaphor. This is the kind of stuff that makes it onto the Athletic. Um, so obviously, obviously Mitrovic sort of gets the headlines with with his goals, but you know behind them. Willian has, has started to uh, have a real renaissance and produce um, some of the form from earlier in his career. We've also got Andreas Pereira, who's sort of really coming to the fore, very good on set pieces. Harrison Reed's sort of been transformed into this goal-scoring box-to-box midfielder. And then behind them, João Palinha, 
a player I looked at a lot earlier in the year because Wolves were linked with him. He's already one of the best sort of ball-winning midfielders in the Premier League. Very, very effective screen in front of the back line, which they need because the defence is the defence is vulnerable and they will concede a lot of goals. But you know, at the moment they're going to they're going to score more than they concede. They're, they're, yeah, they're great to watch. They're miles above the bottom three in terms of quality, and um, they could be on for a bit of a top half finish if they keep this momentum up. And when it comes to Marco Silva, I think when you see Fulham playing this free-flowing football, it's it's down to him. Of, of course, Leeds were defending poorly, but uh, it's it's Silva's merit. Uh, they're seventh in the Premier League, and that's outstanding because so many people, including me, saying that Fulham was going to be Fulham. They would go back to the championship. They bought too many players. That story of they're too good for the championship. They're not good enough for the Premier League. They look good enough for the Premier League. Uh, they, they still need to improve defensively because they, they conceded 22 goals in 12 matches. I think it's 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 a little bit too much uh, because they, they have uh, all this talent. And, and Tim was saying about Palinha and Andreas, his fifth assist, assist of the season. Uh, William finally scored. They have a lot of quality on midfield and up front, but if there's an area that they can improve what is already looking good, uh, defense defense definitely is, is that. My word. There you go. The extraordinary Fulham, who've already won as many games this season as they did in the entirety of the last Premier League campaign. Very good. Next up, let's talk about the team they beat midweek and the change they've made since the departure of Steven Gerrard, Aston Villa. Hello, it's Kate Borsay, Lindsay Hooper and Hayley McQueen here, otherwise known as the Offside Rule. We have a very special show. It's been 10 years of the Offside Rule. If you've been enjoying it over the last decade, you can get some extra insight. Yes, we have a really good chat about how the industry has changed in the 10 years and chat as well about some of the highs of recording a podcast as an only female trio in the football world and some of the lows as well. So join us for fun. We're also joined by Harriet Drudge and Laura Williamson from The Athletic. So check it out. That's The Offside Rule. We're all driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. According to their own survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. Remember the last time you were hiring and how slow and overwhelming it was? Well, you don't need to go through all that again. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent. And because you listen to The Totally Football Show, Indeed is going to give you a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash totally. That's I-N-D-E-E-D.com slash totally. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed at Indeed.com. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Danny Ings up against David Raya. Ings steps up. Scores brilliantly. I'm not 
sure anyone inside this stadium would have expected Aston Villa to be leading by three goals in the opening 15 minutes. Aston Villa beaten 3-0 by Fulham on Thursday, firing Steven Gerrard that night. Sunday, with caretaker Aaron Danks in charge, beating Brentford 4-0. How? What had gone wrong? Who's next? All those kind of questions hopefully now answered as we're joined by Dan Bardell of the Athletic Football Podcast. Hi, Dan. How you doing? You okay? Yeah, very well. It, well it, what a reaction, Dan. Steven Gerrard departing after that 3-0 defeat and the team 3-0 up within the first quarter of an hour of their first game without him. What's that tell you? Yeah, also Villa have not been able to beat Brentford for love nor money over the last few years. We've took their players, their coaches, their manager, and we've still been worse than them, whatever league we've been in. So it was it was great to finally beat them as well. But I think if anything showed you that it wasn't working under Steven Gerrard, it was Thursday night followed by Sunday afternoon because the players were fantastic yesterday and... I don't like to go in and criticise a manager, but Steven Gerrard should have, been, should have been sacked weeks ago. I've spent a lot of the last few weeks defending Villa fans when pundits have been calling for patience and, and saying the Villa fans needed to give Steven Gerrard more time. He was given too long because it was clear it wasn't going to work out and, and the reaction yesterday probably tells you everything that you need to know. All right. Uh, Aaron Danks then. Danks very much. What did he actually do to the team? He basically played a formation that the fans have been saying suited our players for probably six, seven, eight months. He he went to a four-two-three-one, which basically just gave the attacking players that Villa have the platform to go out there and, and play, which they haven't had under the rigid system that Steven Gerrard had implemented. So Douglas Louise and and Dendonka actually ran that midfield yesterday. They also protected the back four very, very well, and, and Villa were never really in trouble in that game at, at all. I think. I've been convinced that the players are there for Villa to push towards a top-half finish and, and maybe try and win, win, win a cup. And it's kind of been, again, in the media, it, it's been been labelled that the players aren't good enough. Perhaps this team is going to be in a relegation dogfight. But I think they showed yesterday that if they're given a coherent system and coherent instructions, they can go out there and, and play. And they, they just blew Brentford away in, in that first 15 minutes. And Leon Bailey had his best game in a Villa shirt. Danny Ings finally did what, what we brought him in, in to do and put and put the ball in the back of the net twice. Ollie Watkins on the flank and Buendia actually playing as, as a number 10. Now, to give Danks credit, I never would have played Watkins on the right and Leon Bailey on the left. But what that did, it gave Villa width finally and it gave Villa pace on the flanks as, as well. And under Steven Gerrard, the build-up was so, so slow. We've mainly played with his two number 10s and there was just no width in the side whatsoever. And you'll all know that the, the best teams in, in the Premier League, they play with width, they play with tempo and quite simply, that was what Villa did under Danks. All right. What's the plan then going forward, Dan? You mentioned sourcing talent from Brentford. Uh, Thomas Frank among the candidates to be the permanent replacement for Steven Gerrard. Who who else is on that list and, and who's the favourite? It's really difficult to say because as ever with these things, it, it changes every day. And I've been asked who I'd like a lot over, over the last few days. And I honestly don't know. I don't know what direction they go in previously to yesterday. I was worried that Villa might end up being in a relegation dogfight. So I was thinking that the, the managers that perhaps Villa would like to bring in, I don't know whether they'd be suited for, for a relegation battle because we could be in trouble here. But yesterday, I think, did show any manager that actually there is a good bunch of play, of players there. That team is better than they've been showing so far, far this season under Steven Gerrard. So a new manager would have something to come in and, and work with. My personal manager that I would like is, is Pochettino. And I know that's that's very ambitious, but... 
Villa should be an ambitious club. Villa should be pushing for the best managers. It's it's the only way you, you get better. And they took a huge, huge risk with Steven Gerrard and, and, and it didn't pay off at all. I think there was merits in choosing him at the time, but it absolutely has not worked out now. I don't think for one second that Pochettino is going to come. I imagine the club will speak to him. They'll try and speak to Tuchel and try and persuade a big-name manager to come through the door. After that, you, you, you're looking at a, a lot of risks. You're looking at either getting someone from abroad who's got no Premier League experience and you're almost trying to unlock the next Pochettino. But actually, when I watched Villa yesterday, and this is going to sound extremely hyperbolic, they reminded me of a Pochettino side, the, the way they pressed the energy in which they played They played with playing that 4-2-3-1. Villa were very, very good yesterday. That's one of the best performances I've seen at Villa Park for a number of years. So I think at least there's a bit of positivity now for the club as they look for a new manager. And, you know, if they don't get one straight away, at least Aaron Danks has shown that he's capable of getting a tune out of these players. And if we have to wait till after the World Cup, we have to wait till after the World Cup. Brilliant stuff, Dan. Brilliant stuff. Well, lovely to speak to you on a more positive note for Villa. At last, and, <laughs> believe uh, me, I, yeah. I enjoyed I enjoyed uh, yesterday far more than I enjoyed being in the away end on Thursday. Well, I can imagine. Excellent stuff, Dan. Thank you so much. Cheers. Dan Bardell of the Athletic Football Podcast. Crikey! Well, there you go. Uh, a fresh new start for Villa. In exciting one goes one stays news. While Stevie G exits, uh, Frank Lampard enjoying a rare old. Revival, meanwhile, at Everton, who've bounced all the way up to 11th place. 3-0 winners against Crystal Palace. They'd only scored three goals at Goodison Park all season prior to this match. Crikey. Yeah, they... they. I mean, we've said it about other clubs, but having that defensive partnership of Cody and Tarkovsky is, is gold dust. And I think in a couple of years, two or three years' time, Everton fans might look back at their ability to sign those two players for no fee, one on a free transfer and one on a loan, and wonder if that was the start of Everton being saved because with the move to the new ground, they couldn't afford to get relegated this season. I think the defence, given the injuries they got on the opening day, I think the defence was bad enough that they could have been relegated without those two there, and they look completely at home. Uh, I, I also, the greatest thing for Everton this season for me is... Alex Awobi and the, the kind of the, the difference that confidence makes in players because Everton like Villa they don't have bad players they have players who for, for whatever reason whether it was just not fitting in with a manager or a manager's style or the mood of the club was just dragging them down or off the field stuff the confidence is everything if you're in a, if you're in a bottom half club and Iwobi just looks a completely different player this season he's second to Kevin De Bruyne in Premier League assists this season which is just nonsensical really but then you watch him play and he takes on a man and he hassles out of possession and he he, he looks to play little flicks without looking and they come off and he gives and goes and you think well yeah that that's a player who was who was developed through Arsenal's academy because he was a, an exceptionally talented young footballer and we haven't seen that over the last two or three years and he'll be as frustrated as that as anyone but we are seeing it now and Every player in the Premier League has the potential to play like that. They're, they're there because they're very good. They just need things to click into place. And it really does feel like it's clicked into place. I have to say, I didn't think Frank Lampard was a brilliant appointment by Everton. And, and I look spectacularly wrong on that because I don't think there's any master tactical stroke that he's playing. I don't think there's any kind of grand plan in that regard. But if you have a group of players who just desperately wanted to enjoy their football again, sometimes it's enough to get them to do that. They are 11th in the table. As I did point out earlier, though, all the bottom 10 are separated by only four points. So it wouldn't take too much 
for them to find themselves at the sharp end again. But for now, very positive stuff. And Dominic Calvert-Lewin returning as well. It's been a while since we've seen him. First goal of the season with uh, Gareth Southgate watching. Mm. Very good. Uh, Spurs Newcastle and Chelsea Man United next. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Sunday afternoon as lightning arched through the heavens and thunder rumbled across the North London skies. Tottenham beaten 2-1 at home by Newcastle. Both Tim and Natalie were there. Huddled, I like to think, under a, a poncho, perhaps. <laughs> Able well... to see through the damp or a second straight defeat for Spurs and a fourth win in five games for Newcastle. Natalie. Yeah, Newcastle, they, they took a point from Man City in one of the best matches of the season. They got a point at Old Trafford. They lost to Liverpool at Anfield with a goal on injury time and now they beat Spurs. They really learned how to play these kind of games and I asked Bruno about it. I spoke with him after the match and he said that it's because against the teams, you, these teams you have to defend and they became really good at defending. And when we talk about Everton, we were we're just discussing them, their defensive improvement. For example, we talk a lot about Cody and Tarkovsky and with Newcastle. Of course, they have good defenders, but the team is so committed as a whole in pressing where they don't have the ball and they show so much intensity while doing this. So it's outstanding. They're the best uh, defensive record in the Premier League. And with Bruno Guimarães, again, uh, we're talking about him because he's chasing the ball all the time. He's pressing. He wants the ball. He wants to be involved all the time. And it's just so likable. I, I, um he got really emotional, actually, during the interview. Uh, he had tears in his eyes because he said that it was a tough week, full of emotions and one of the happiest in his life because his son was born uh, just three days ago. And after the, the, the Everton match, he hadn't had any sleep for two nights. He, he looked completely exhausted. And the club gave him the option of, of not playing, of course, against Spurs. But he said, no, the, the guys here, they're just so nice to me. Of course, I have to play. I'm going to play. And, and he hasn't felt this happy, he said, since he played in Brazil for Atlético Paranaense. And he was very emotional because he said he went through some bad times at Lyon uh, and, and he really appreciates the fans because they're chanting for him even if he's just passing the ball sideways and he thinks it's it's all very funny. So it's, it's all clicking for Newcastle and they're fourth in the league already. And I asked him, is, is it already the, the season that Newcastle is going to challenge for the fourth spot? And he said, yeah, well, we feel like we are where we should be. So, so maybe that is the season that Newcastle is going to just bother the teams at the top and, and really go for that fourth spot. Yeah, the table doesn't lie. I mean, notoriously. So there they are in, in fourth place. And uh, Ituralde saying, uh, asking actually, does Natalie feel that Bruno Guimaraes can become a decade-long pillar for the Newcastle project in the same sort of way that David Silva turned out to be for Manchester City? Is he what I guess the Americans would term a franchise player for them, Natalie? Uh, 
I think uh, if Newcastle continues to improve and, and to present uh, good possibilities for Bruno Guimarães, because of course it's, it's a matter of time for other teams who are playing the Champions League to go after him. Uh, but if Newcastle is, is competing up at the top uh, and he's so happy with the fans in the club, at the city, and he shows that all the time, he's really comfortable, he just had a son, so the, the, the environment that he lives in really matters. So I think if Newcastle keeps improving, then I don't see a reason why, why Bruno would leave, but, but the project needs to, to, keep, to keep going. We talked about Alex Awobi and kind of players needing to feel the environment is right for them to do what they can and that every Premier League player has that ability. Every Premier League manager does as well. The idea of the the big thing about Eddie Howe is A, his transfer market record and it helps when you have a squillion pounds to spend but Newcastle have done it very well. Um, but also that he couldn't organise a defence and now he has he is a manager of the Premier League's best defence. I think we're very quick to look at a team's performance and think, well, this is damning on the manager. He can't do this. He can't do that. Actually, sometimes it just needs to be better circumstances. And Newcastle are a really good club to manage at the moment because you're coming after a an unpopular manager and the club is coming off the back of unpopular owners. Certainly within Newcastle, the current owners are unpopular as well for different reasons. But it's working for Howe because he's showing that you know all the doubts about his reputation as a as a coach were probably unfounded he just needed a situation where he could do that and he is flourishing like no one else also it was, i mean it was the manner of the victory it wasn't it wasn't lucky it wasn't seat of the pants stuff um i was in his post match press conference and Eddie Howe said it was their best best performance under him um which ten hag had said for man united against spurs on wednesday night actually so i don't know what that says about spurs um so I, but i saw a few people scoff at that Eddie Howe saying it was their best performance because you know they didn't blow spurs away but he means in terms of a, a complete team performance, I think, because I was fully expecting a Spurs onslaught. You know, they, they got the goal just at the right time at the start of the second half, and you're expecting the last half hour to be one-way traffic and maybe Newcastle sitting deep and inviting pressure, but they didn't. They, they continued to play in the same way. They did not sit deep. They managed the game really well, bit of time wasting, um, kept the ball really well, and um, saw it out, you know, re- relatively comfortably, to be honest. It was a very mature performance, which, which I think bodes really well for the months ahead. Mm. Some Spurs fans getting quite restless on the subject of their manager, Antonio Conte, who himself was irate about the decision on the first goal for Newcastle, scored by uh, Callum Wilson after his collision with Hugo Lloris. Did we all play Boris Lloris uh, at the weekend? You know, Boris Lloris with the handshake emoji underneath, both caught out with some dangerous Russian, uh, both making an ill-advised run, but, having, but ending up conceding, that kind of thing. Instead of standing, ended up lying. All that sort of thing. What did you feel? Fair goal? Fair? I thought so. If that, if, if it's if it's two outfield players who sort of run into each mm. other, I, 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 I don't think it stops. So, you know, why don't the rules apply to Lloris? He, he's the one who's made the decision to, to rush out of his box when he probably didn't need to. So, um, yeah, bad goalkeeping, I think. He only had himself to blame. Mm. All right. Problems then for Spurs, but they remain third in the table. Missing Christian Romero and Pierre-Emil Hjoyberg uh, through fatigue in this game as well. Kulosevsky, perhaps the biggest absence of, uh, of all. I, I guess, Tim, that most people would point to as uh, the reason for the, the way the lights have gone out a little bit. Yeah, definitely. They really missed that link between 
midfield and attack. They just haven't really got anyone else to do that. Oliver Skip came in yesterday for his first start since January and, and did, did show a bit of that, a bit of positive intent from, from midfield. I thought he was very good, but he could only last an hour because, you know, he's been out injured. But yeah, they, they really miss Kulisevsky. And it was interesting, my first experience of, of the crowd sort of turning on Spurs yesterday, um, which sort of happened, started to happen before half-time, a few misplaced passes at the back. And it's interesting, really, because, you know, they are third, they're still third in the league, as you say, despite losing. They'd won their previous 10 at home in all competitions. So you'd think it'd be quite a, ha- a happy place, really. But the, the, there are underlying issues, you know, in terms of the style of Conte's football. And, you know, as I guess as Nuno found out a year ago, you know, if, if it's OK or it's acceptable to be winning and not playing well or not playing attractive football... Um, at a club like Spurs, but but once you start losing and not playing well, there's um, there's not much patience. So um, it felt mutinous to and in the first half. I mean, they, 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 every misplaced pass was getting booed, loud boos at half time, which which drowned out the noise of the thunder in the skies. They're not happy with the style of football, and also there's, I guess, there's an issue over over how, how long is Conte going to be there? You know, he's out of contract at the end of season. Um, is he going to sign a new deal? Does he want to? Does he want to be here in the long term? Are Spurs kind of good enough for him? I don't think those are questions that have that have sort of really been answered yet. So um, they'll need that show of faith and show of commitment in terms of his contract at some point. As, I know contracts might not mean anything that the paper they're written on, but mm-hmm. but it's it's the op, it's the optics of it really. I think Spurs fans are kind of saying, you know, does this guy want to hang around in the long term? Mm, absolutely, uh, Natalie. Last time you were on, you were talking about. Um, our shy friend Miguel Amiron at Newcastle. <laughs> and what an extraordinary turn of form he suddenly hit. Yeah, it's, it's really, well, when things are going well collectively, uh, it just it just changes the mood for everyone. And Almiron has been in Newcastle for, for a while now, and, and the, the fans really seem to back him as well. I, I already, uh, I even saw a, a Paraguay flag uh, in the stands, which is which is really nice for for a guy like him who spent his first seasons just uh, not looking confident at all on the pitch, out out of the pitch, and and he he won man of the match, and he was just so happy and and just uh, saying hi to all the the journalists who were there, and and he just looks like a different, completely different person. He communicates better and and on and off the pitch, and he's just uh, enjoying and playing with with more freedom so it's it's it, it looks like a complete different player honestly I remember the, the first couple of seasons I was thinking I'm not sure if he's gonna last in Newcastle and here he is you know and just playing really good football mm, scoring probably the goal of the weekend as well there at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium Natalie you also went on Saturday to Chelsea's 1-1 draw with Man United a great demonstration this from Man United of why people shouldn't leave football matches early <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, and I spoke to Casemiro after the match. Uh, and I was quite impressed with the way he talked about Man United, you know, saying that his adaptation couldn't be uh, going in a better way, that he, uh, even when he wasn't playing, that Ten Hag and the coaching staff were talking to him all the time and that the club has been really caring and thoughtful with him. I think it gets to the point in your career when you're really experienced and these things, they just make a big difference. And he genuinely looks very happy at Man United and and very much himself. And I think you can see that on the celebrations. Uh, we've seen Casemiro celebrate that uh, on that uh, fashion uh, in, in Madrid. 
loads of times, but to see him score and, and just embracing the, the, the moment. And this is what you expect from a player from like Casemiro. He's such a good header and he's a leader and he he's so solid. So he showed uh, all of this uh, in spite Man United been kind of in trouble on second on second half because uh, with everything that Graham Potter, the tactical change uh, on the first half. And still about Man United, actually, I was impressed with Ten Hag. It was very interesting. The tactical duo was very interesting because I've been to almost every match, Man United match in the, in the Premier League uh, on site, and he was always very calm. And he was so agitated. It was like he was seeing what was happening and why the team wasn't finding solutions. And he desperately needed to find different things and and those 35 minutes from Man United were were really good they didn't take their their chances but again they showed that they can impose themselves like they did against Spurs they showed that drive they showed the confidence and the awareness of the spaces they had to explore and the right pace to do that but after the 35th minute or so it was more uh Chelsea's merits and Mm. and especially Potter's Okay, Chelsea, who were seconds away from recording their first victory over United in 10 league meetings before Casemiro bagged his first goal for his new club and those wild celebrations. Uh, less happy after the game, Rafael Varane, who's done a hamstring, is that right? Leaving the field in, in tears, it looked like at Stamford Bridge. Is his World Cup at risk? Yeah, I mean, the, the problem is now is that it doesn't have to be a serious injury to to rule you out of the World Cup because we don't have that buffer from an end of the season to the start of a tournament that players normally get. So if Varane is going to be out for even you know, four weeks and then need time to get back up to match fitness, he's a difficult pick. And those sort of injuries generally take between four and six weeks if that's what it is. And yes, that, that absolutely therefore does put his World Cup participation and we should say his almost certainly his final World Cup uh, in doubt, which would be a huge shame for him. The final round of games, I think, is, is two weeks on Sunday. Right. Sunday the 13th, I think, is, is when the last mm-hmm. Premier League games are. So if, if, you, if you're in Europe, you've still got six games to go. Um, Spurs have got two Champions League games, three Premier League games, and one EF, EFL Cup game. Mm. Um, yeah, that EFL Cup third round <laughs> uh, is going to be more farcical than usual because it's it's going to be youth players everywhere, isn't it? See you at the city ground, Tim, for a... <laughs> I can't wait. For a Spurs <laughs> reserve team off. <laughs> Chelsea have Champions League coming up this midweek. They're going to be at Salzburg. Chelsea, who continued this weekend, uh, their worrying trend of conceding last-minute goals or letting leads slip. Uh, Seven points they've dropped, which in a really tight top-four race could could well have a big influence. That's as many points dropped from winning positions this season as Man United, Man City and Arsenal and Spurs have done put together. All right, next up. Let's catch up with what Arsenal, who themselves conceded a lead this weekend, and Man City got up to. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Oh, by accident, the design, but here's Smith open on the right. Rooney in the middle. 
24th of October. Listen, on this day in 2004, Man United beat Arsenal 2 0, ending the record unbeaten run of English top flight football. Uh, of course, held a set by Arsenal's Invincibles. 49 games they went without a defeat before losing that match at Old Trafford in controversial circumstances, certainly from an Arsenal point of view when we mentioned this. Our producer Charlie said it's the game he's most bitter about in his life. He said other things too, but we don't need to go into that. <laughs> I, was, I was there as a, as a student. Were you there? In, yeah, as a student in Manchester and I had a mate who was a Man United season ticket holder and his mum couldn't go up. So, mm. yeah, I went. It was a, it, I mean, the atmosphere was absolutely incredible, it should be said. I mean, I know Old Trafford is not always known for that the kind of febrile nature maybe but it really was a kind of sense of score settling in that game right what what game are you most bitter about daniel do you have a game uh, the nine the 1991 fa cup final and paul gascoigne not being sent off there you go natalie is there one for you oh corinthians palmeiras uh semi-finals of libertadores 2000 because palmeiras is is uh, the main rival of Corinthians. I'm just sad, just remembering this. And and we lost on penalties with our best uh, penalty kicker missing out the fifth penalty. And we were just so much better than Palmeiras. It was like the best Corinthians of 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 a long time. It's, uh, God, it was awful. I, I didn't go to school because I was crying all night. The following seriously, yes, yeah. yes, seriously, <laughs> <Super>. yes, yes. <laughs> Tim, what match has made you miss school? Um, Wolves Bolton, nineteen ninety-five, would be. Oh yeah, why? Uh, yeah, I, 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 know, I know you will remember it well. But for the benefit of the listeners, it was um, playoff semi-final in in what's known now known as Championship. Um, it was two-two going into extra time. Bolton in their old supermarket stadium, and Bolton striker John McGinley punched David Kelly. It, it was a punch. There's evidence on YouTube. Uh, but the referee only booked him, um, and then he went and scored the winner in the second half of extra time. I, 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 I wept. I did weep that night. Tim. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, moving on then. Speaking of the Arsenal, current Premier League leaders were held 1-1 by Saints. This weekend, and with City beating Brighton 3-1 the day before, the gap at the top is back down to, to just two now. What happened at St Mary's Sunday at two o'clock? Does anybody know? Xhaka scoring first, and then Stuart Armstrong equalising in the, in the second half. Yeah, I think the the kind of what well, the two kind of pervading themes are one Southampton able to drag themselves back into the game by. I, I think sensing that Arsenal might be pretty low on energy after playing on Thursday night. Um, and being really successful at pressing them high up the pitch, which is not something we've really seen from from Southampton against bigger clubs before. And also, Gabriel Jesus just missing those half chances, which that was always the worry, and it doesn't overshadow some or certainly not most of his brilliant work off the ball and his working kind of linking play together. But in those crux moments in tight games, he isn't a, a completely elite finisher. That That's not really in doubt. Uh, that's why he, he isn't a Manchester City anymore. Uh, that's why he needs the other parts of his game to, to make him a really effective player. And, and he does have those. But just in those moments of half chances, Mikel Arteta kind of said after the game exactly that. You know, yes, there are, ch- there are chances that he would want to take, but he offers so much more. But after a one-all draw, that's le- you know, your your lead at the top has, has been cut in half. That will slightly nag. And 
and the reality is is that I think it was probably a mistake to play Jesus against PSV on last Thursday because he he did look a little bit tired in the second half and and tiredness makes a massive difference when it comes to taking chances it's not just about kind of your ability to sprint it's how kind of how composed you feel in the moment so I think we should expect certainly Eddie Nketiah to start on on Thursday in Eindhoven but probably should have last Thursday as well okay not looking tired at the moment Erling Haaland he's got a brace for Man City in their 3-1 victory over the Seagulls Mark Davidson asks is there any speed data on Haaland's penalty because the keeper didn't even have a chance to move I, I must admit, I thought it was ex- astonishingly fast, this. No Kevin Pressman, we should say. but Really? Um, yes, no Kevin Pressman, but a, a very hard hit penalty. I mean, if, if he hits the ball as hard as he can and it goes anywhere near the corner, it's completely impossible to save it. Mm. Completely impossible. Uh, and more, I'd say, eight times out of ten, he will do exactly that. Uh, yeah. Well, the keeper the keeper could only, could only drop, to his, drop to his knees, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. I heard a commentator say uh, during that game that it's like watching an under-14s player against under-9s. Um, I've also heard Haaland, Haaland compared to a Premier League player playing in non-league. So I'm just, just kind of wondering, you know, where does he have to go for it to be difficult? Where, where, <laughs> where's, his, where's his level? You know, do we have to send him to outer space? Or what's the... <laughs> He's too good for everybody. Sort of maybe like a sort of horse racing handicap system of sort of weights applied to. <laughs> His first goal, Natalie, was City showing they can also knock it long, and it featured a second assist from a Brazilian goalkeeper in the Premier League in a week. Remarkable. Yes. And we are all very happy about that because as we've been discussing, the World Cup is just around the corner. Like we don't have enough playmakers. We, d- we need our goalkeepers to, to give assists as well because Alisson was, was assisting recently and now with Ederson. So, yeah, that, that's very positive. I was actually looking it up of how many players already assisted Haaland because like, we have to find new stats, the goals mm. and, and all of that is just, we already know, but... Maybe all City players will have a chance to assist Haaland because now that Ederson's on the list, uh, it's nine, nine different players. So we're still waiting for Jack Grealish, Mares, really? those obvious. Yes, yes, they haven't assisted uh, Haaland yet, but it's coming for sure. And I, I'm just curious to, to know by the end of the season if uh, like how many different players have assisted Haaland in his I don't know 50 something or 60 something goals uh, but Ederson is already on the books nice no but that's interesting nine players already mm-hmm. furnished him with an assist but Jack Grealish who you think would be one of the prime candidates to do that the most ideally suited yeah no definitely and but to be fair Grealish and I I say it's it's coming because Grealish's been having a really good season it's it's a very positive season but for now the list is Ederson uh Sergio Gomez Cancelo Bernardo Silva John Stones uh, Phil Foden, I want to see how many defenders are going to assist him. <laughs> so, uh, uh, Foden, Gundogan, Rodri, and of course, uh, De Bruyne, who will, uh, and we will lose count of, of that one. Especially. All right, and lovely pronunciation as well. The uh, the other thing with assists, of course, is it's as much about the strike of converting it as it is, you know, the, Grealish has put the balls in, I think. Uh, yes, Brighton remain winless since Graham Potter left. Guess who they're facing next? Yeah, it is Graham Potter. That's right, listener. He'll be back at the Amex with Chelsea. That's next Saturday. 
interesting how he chose to to defend men on men against Man City because I like it when we see managers challenging concepts that are seen as old fashioned because you keep hearing that men on men is so old fashioned it's 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 not for modern football and it makes you think you know it takes you out of your comfort zone we see uh the, the score 3-1 but it it wasn't always this comfortable for for Man City so yeah it it was just interesting to 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 think about that because Teams have to be creative uh, while defending against Man City, and and I think Deserbi just just went for for that for create creativity and and man on man. I think my initial impression of Deserbi is that he he could well be and have been a brilliant manager for Brighton this season if he'd have had a pre-season. It seems like a huge ask. By all accounts, he's working very hard on the training ground. He's trying these new concepts. These are the sort of things that you plan in June and July and beginning of August and players are completely comfortable with I don't think they've played badly really at all under him probably other than the 2-0 defeat at Brentford but there is a sort of sense of oh Graham Potter's not here anymore and everything feels very different and that's it's so hard to learn on the job when you lose a manager in mid-season that wasn't your choice we talked about the negative impact of having a World Cup a couple of months into the season but could actually be a benefit for some clubs and in terms of giving sides a second chance at a pre-season, it might well be doing that. I don't know how many of Brighton squad are going to be going to the, the World Cup, though. Yeah, there's there's not that many. Leandro Trossard will be there with mm. uh, with Belgium. But yeah, there's not a huge amount, which is, yeah, as you say, is, is brilliant for him because, yes, he needs to have that kind of false pre-season to, to work on things. Because I, I think they look really, really good in, in patches against City and certainly against Liverpool. And then... They, sh- they should have beaten Forest, so it can look very different. But until you get that first win, inevitably people think, well, everything's falling apart here. And Trossard, he scored a goal and, and he's been brilliant. Uh, so uh, it's, it's, it's nice to see him playing in, in such a high level. Absolutely. Ninth Brighton set at the moment, with one game to be played from this round of action. That's West Ham Bournemouth. That's Monday night. Tuesday morning... Uh, as I mentioned before, Jules, James, Rafa and Alvaro will be here to round up everything that's happened across Europe over the weekend and, of course, look forward to the Champions League games Tuesday and Wednesday. Some key matches there. Could see some big names exiting. Juventus, Barcelona, quite possibly. And then Thursday, we'll be back with our review of all of that and look forward to the Premier League weekend. But that brings us to the end of today's A Totally Show. Many thanks to Tim, Daniel, Natalie, producer Charlie, you listener. Hope you enjoy all of the football heading our way and that you'll join us again soon from now. From all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Athletic.